I don't know how many of you have seen this picture. Um, it's been floating around uh, social media the last few days, and I thought I'd show it kind of as an example this morning. The, there's a caption that came with it. If, you haven't, if you're not on social media, you probably haven't seen it. Maybe you've seen something like it. But there's a caption that came with it that said, if you are left brain, you will see a fish. And if you are right brain, then you will see a mermaid. I don't know what that says about me, and maybe you're in the same boat as me. I can't see anything else but a donkey. That's, that's, now, I, can't, I, I, I'm, I lied a little bit. I can't see something else. I can see a seal. If you look in there, you can see the seal's face at the bottom. Um, I, ha, I am racking. I've tried to turn the image. I've tried to flip it sideways. I cannot. I mean, I guess a fish, but I don't. I can even see a, a, a seal on its belly and on its back, but definitely a donkey. Which, I, again, I don't know what that says about me or you, for that matter, if you see the donkey first. Um, but the image is meant to be an optical illusion that, that says something about your mind and, and how you see things and your imagination. Uh, also shows you, I think, that you can, uh, you can see sometimes something one way, and in reality, it, it might be something completely different, at least different from what the original author or... Um, creator's intent. And I think that happens a lot of times in life. Uh, I think it also happens sometimes when it comes to the life and teachings of Jesus. Sometimes we can grow up and be raised in, in, a, in a church and, and with a familiarity when it comes to scripture. And it's easy to look at certain passages and things about Jesus and, and, and ideas about Jesus and look at his life and to think, oh yeah, I know what that means. I, I, I know what that's all about. I, 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 I've seen that before. When the truth is sometimes what may be going on, it may be what we, what we think it is, but maybe sometimes it may be different than what we have thought or believed. Uh, and who he is and what he's about isn't exactly what we thought. Well, we are continuing in our series called The Good Life, in which we're walking through Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And today we're going to be looking at a particular passage that I think is one of those examples of Jesus preparing his disciples to understand that there are going to be times when people misunderstand him and who he is and what he's about. Times when, when they think they know exactly what Jesus is all about and, 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 and what he came to do and, and what his teachings mean, but in reality their view of him is just a little bit off, or in some cases, a, a lot bit off. So turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we're going to be reading verses 17 through 20. We're going to read through it, and we're going to walk back through it. But we're going to read it first and see what Jesus says. So Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 17 through 20, either in your Bibles or you can follow up on the screen. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, it's funny. When you look at different um, fashion trends and decorating trends, it's funny how they're, they're cyclical, right? I mean, some of you have seen 
many trends come and go. And, and so what was popular and trendy decades ago maybe has made a comeback. And now you know, parents and grandparents are looking at the things that their kids and grandkids are wearing and saying, yeah, that was, that was popular when I was a kid or that was trendy when I was a kid because what once had gone out of style is now back in style. And there are things sometimes in our culture that come along that seem so new and radical when the truth is they've actually kind of been around for quite some time. You know, Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And when he says that, in essence, he's saying, listen, there are going to be people who come along and say that I've come to, to get rid of the law and the prophets, that the Old Testament just doesn't matter anymore, and everything that was said back then doesn't really matter in the more, anymore. I've got this new trendy teaching that's coming from out of nowhere, teaching that seems so fresh and, and challenging and radical. And that's exactly what Jesus' critics would say about him, that he's basically just upheaving all of these things that God has been saying for all of these years. You know, that word radical is actually an interesting word. In our culture, we define radical as something that's new and different from that which is ordinary and traditional. But did you know that the, the word radical actually comes from a Latin word meaning from the root or of the root? The truth is Jesus is radical. He's radical in the sense that he came to take people back to the root of how God intended for people to live all along, as he's told us through the law and the prophets and revealed to his people in the law and the prophets. His teachings, Jesus' teachings, actually take people back to the root of what God has been saying all along. And so that's some of why he says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. In fact, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And certainly Jesus did come to fulfill Old Testament prophecy, but even that word fulfilled carries with it different kinds of, of, of appenditures. It, it carries with it a deeper meaning and an idea of confirming or, or even accomplishing. In other words, Jesus is saying there are people who are going to say that I'm down on the law and the prophets, that I'm just shunning them, I'm pushing them aside, when in reality, I've come to confirm them. I've come to live them out the way that they were meant to be lived out. I'm not against Moses and the prophets, what I'm against is what the religious leaders are doing with what Moses and the prophets have said. And I've come to challenge them and to reclaim God's word and take you back to the root of what God has been saying all along. And in saying this, Jesus is setting up what he's about to talk about throughout the rest of Matthew chapter 5. When he addresses subjects like murder and anger and adultery and lust and divorce and, and oaths and an eye-for-an-eye eye approach to living and loving your enemies. And six times throughout that teaching, you're going to notice a common phrase that Jesus uses. He's going to say, you've heard that it was said. And then he's going to say, but I tell you, or I say. And in no way is he challenging what God has said, but rather he's challenging the religious leaders and their interpretation and application of what God has said, and he's setting them all up. And then to make sure that his disciples know how he feels about the law and the prophets, he continues, and he says this in verse 18, For I truly tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Jesus is in essence saying, look, this is God's word. It hasn't changed. It's not going anywhere. 
This is God's inspired word from the smallest letter to the tiniest stroke. By the way, do you know what the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet is? Maybe some of you know this. It's the letter iota. It's where we get the phrase, not, you know, not an iota or, or you know, not one iota. We, we sometimes use that phrase. Also in the Greek language, there are these little accent marks that are associated with each word that tell you where the, the kind of the punctuation or the emphasis is, is meant to be within that word and how it's supposed to be pronounced. Now, I don't know if that's exactly what Jesus meant, but it's kind of a cool imagery. Jesus spoke, um, you know, uh, Aramaic, but obviously the New Testament is written in, in Greek. At any rate, Jesus is making it clear that the law and the prophets are inspired by God. They are the inspired word of God from the smallest letter to the tiniest accent. He's not down on the law and the prophets. He's down on what the corrupt religious leaders are doing with it. And speaking of what they're doing with it, Jesus says this, Anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Again, Jesus is telling you how he feels about the Old Testament. I don't have time to get into all of this, but I, you know, I, it's always interesting to me that our pages... From Matthew to Revelation are much more worn than the pages before that. And I think there is a lesson to be learned, but we will have to save that for another day. But Jesus is driving home the importance of the law and the prophets. He's making it clear where he stands on this, just in case there are any doubters. And he says that people are going to be held accountable for how they respond to even the least of these things. By the way, note the order in which he says these things. He says, whoever, whoever practices and teaches... Note that practice precedes teaching. Walking out the commands precedes talking about the commands. Here's the catch, though, in what Jesus is saying. It's practicing and teaching the commands as he would interpret and apply them. After all, he's not come to abolish the law and the prophets. He's come to confirm them. He's come to accomplish them. He's come to live them out the way that they were meant to be lived out. In Jesus, you literally have the author coming and showing up to take everybody back to the root of what he originally intended when he read it, wrote it originally. And speaking of the root, Jesus says this in verse 20, which is where we're going to spend most of the rest of our time kind of digging into this idea. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. I think in many ways this is a verse that ought to be Underlined. We kind of tend to skip over it sometimes because we don't think a whole lot of it. But it ought to be underlined and highlighted. And when Jesus said this, it really was a bombshell. For us, it's kind of like, eh, okay, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees. Okay, yeah, I mean, I know a little bit about the Pharisees, but okay, wh what does that really mean? But in, in that day and age, this was a bombshell. I can just imagine everyone gasping because the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were thought of as the epitome of, of righteousness. They taught the law. They ate, slave, ate, drank, and slept the law. And Jesus now is saying that unless their righteousness surpasses that of the, the, the best keepers of the law that the, that the Jews knew in that day, then they weren't going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, what, what chance do people have? It's like sometimes this, uh, uh, this kind of... Uh, halo that put people put over a, a preacher or a minister that somehow I'm, I, you know, I've had people and I appreciate the, the, um, 
the sentiment, I, I know you don't mean anything by it, but I'm sure Dwayne has had this similar, like that somehow I have a, a more direct connection to God because I'm the pastor. Like I don't have a red Batman phone at home that I can just pick up that you don't have access to, you know. Um, but, but we hold up these people sometimes and, and we say, well, that, they're the definition of righteousness, right? And, and that's good to have people that we look up to in their faith. Um, but they, these Pharisees were looked at, these teachers of the law were looked at. If anybody can keep the law, it's them. If anybody can have a righteousness through keeping the law, it is them. So what hope does anyone else have? Because if you really understand the life of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, there's no one that could be more, quote-unquote, obedient than they were. There are 613 commands in the Old Testament law. And so if I'm going to be more obedient than the best keepers of the law, then theoretically I'm going to have to not only keep 613 commands, but I'm going to have to ha find somewhere a 614th command, and then I've got to obey that, and I've just got to be perfect in everything that I do. What hope does anybody have? But Jesus here is making it clear that what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law considered to be righteousness really wasn't. They saw a different picture than what Jesus was trying to paint. I, I read a story, and I've told this before, but I, I love the illustration. I love the idea. Um, but I read a story uh, told by a minister named Kenneth Ulmer, and he tells the story that when he was going through seminary, um, there was a class that he was taking, and the only grade for the class was a paper that was to be written at the end of the semester. And so he thought to himself, okay, I'm a busy guy. I'm going through seminary, I want to do my best, but I'm a, I'm a young father, I'm married, I've got, I'm a young minister right now, I'm trying to balance all of these things, and if the only grade for the paper, or the only grade for the class is a paper that I you know, have to turn in at the end of the semester, then I'll just show up on the first day of class, get the syllabus, get the books that I'm supposed to read, read the books, and then write the paper and turn it in when it's due, and, and that'll be good, and I'll, I'll do my best and try and pass the class. And so that's exactly what he did. He showed up the first day of class, he picked up the syllabus, he read the instructions for the paper, and then he left. He didn't show up until the last week of class, last week of the semester, and he turned his paper in. Well, a week later, he got his paper back, and the professor had written a series of notes on red, or in red ink on the paper, and the notes read this. Excellent writing, clear line of thinking, good content, fine argument, not the assignment. F. And that's basically the story of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And I can't help but shudder if sometimes we as Christians don't fall into that category as well. But specifically, they had interpreted the syllabus for themselves and thought they had done quite well. The problem was they had developed a righteousness by their own standards and had convinced most everybody around them that their standard of righteousness was what God was looking for. And Jesus, in essence, comes on the scene and he says here in Matthew chapter 5, that's the wrong assignment. You get an F. I know you look the part on the outside. You know, you come to the temple, you come to church, you look the part, but that's the wrong assignment. That's not what I'm looking for. So the big question is, what is the righteousness that God is looking for? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. That's what we're going to talk about for the rest of our time this morning. I, I don't have all the answers, um, and I can't give you a wholly inclusive answer on this, but I am going to give you three things that I think 
this passage speaks to and Jesus' words as a whole speak to when it comes to what righteousness, the kind of righteousness that God is looking for. And the first is this. God is looking for a righteousness that goes deep. He's looking for a righteousness that goes deep. A righteousness that has some depth to it. If you look at the rest of Matthew chapter 5 and what Jesus is about to say, he's going to give us, and we'll walk through these passages. We are going to walk through these passages over the next several weeks. But he's going to give us six real-life, everyday examples of what the kind of righteousness that he's looking for looks like. And in each and every circumstance he talks about, his focus is, is it's not that behavior is not important, but his focus is on the heart. What's going on in here? I can look all the right things on the outside and do all the right things, quote unquote, but what's going on on the inside? Because he's more worried about what's going on in here that then impacts what's going on on the outside. For instance, Matthew chapter 5, I'm just going to walk through these. They're not on your screen, but you can follow along uh, in, in your Bibles if you have them open. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. What do you do when you're at odds with someone? Jesus says, you've heard that it said, don't murder. Like as long as you don't kill somebody, then you're okay. But I say, watch your anger. Don't even speak about that person in, in angry ways. But instead, work towards reconciliation. Not just behavior, but heart. Next issue, adultery, verses 27 through 30. What do you do when you're tempted with that scenario? Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. No physical contact, right? Won't get into that, but, but you, know, you know what I mean. No physical contact. That, that's the line, right? But I say, don't even look lustfully. Don't even cultivate that desire. Again, not just behavior, but heart. Next issue, marriage, verse 31 and 32. What do you do when you're unhappy with your spouse? Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, just make sure you get a certificate for divorce. Just make sure you, you go through the proper channels, okay? That's what the Old Testament under Moses. But Jesus says, marriage is more than, than just a piece of paper. Next issue, oaths, verses 33 through 37. What do you do when you want to be believed? Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, keep your oath. If you make it, it says you, you, you can make an oath, uh, you know, just make sure you keep it. But I say, speak truth always. If you just speak truth, you won't need enough. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Next issue, verses 38 through 42. How do you react to someone who's done you wrong? Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, inflict the same injury on the offender. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You know, pay back what they gave to you. Not, nothing more, but what they gave to you. But I say... Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Then the last section of Matthew chapter 5, loving your enemies, verses 43 through 48. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemies. By the way, we'll talk about that when we get there. That's not what the Old Testament said, but that's, um, we'll, we'll talk about when it gets there. Love your neighbor, hate your enemies. But I say, love and bless your enemies. Take it even a step further than don't just be mean to them, you know, and, and just be neutral to them. Love and bless your enemies. So much of what Jesus has to say has to do with our heart and not just our behavior. Anger, lust, divorce, honesty, reacting to those who've hurt you, how to treat your enemies. Those, um, you know, all of those things have to do with heart issues. All of those things have to do with what's going on on the inside, either attitudes of the heart or God attending to the heart in those matters or having your heart engaged if you're going to pull those things off and do those things and live those things out. And we're, again, we're going to walk through all of those teachings over the next several weeks. But today, I just want you to see the common theme that runs throughout what Jesus is going to say throughout the rest of this chapter. Jesus 
pushes beyond just this focus on what we look like on the outside. This outside righteousness. So that we appear to be this, this, this form of obedience and righteousness and, and quote unquote, we slap the, the Christian tag on it and we're good to go. And he gets down to the matter of the heart. Which is the heart of the matter. And I think one of the problems is that when our focus is on the external righteousness and on external behavior, it's easy for our mindset to become, okay, well, what is enough where I can get by and still be righteous? Right? So, like, what's enough? You hear this phrase a lot. I'm a good person. They're a good person. So, like, what's the... What is my def- What's the minimum I can do where I can still be considered a good person? Yeah, that's over the line, and we all have our things, right, where we say this is over the line, but this, what's the minimum I can do to get by? What's the minimum I can, I can check off so that I can really slap the Christian label on myself? Where's the line? How far is too far? Makes me think of a comic strip I read several, I, I don't know when I read it, it's been a while, but I've, I've kept tabs of it because I, I like this idea. Um, but in one of the main characters had taken a test in school, and he knew that he needed a 60 to pass. And he got the test back, and he got a 68. And he said, what a waste. I got eight points I didn't even need. <laughs> and Jesus is confronting that mindset that says, what's the absolute minimum when it comes to external righteousness and behavior? And when Jesus says that our righteousness has to surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, again, that was deflating to everybody. Because immediately they thought that Jesus is setting the minimum super duper high. Like, Jesus, this is unattainable. I, we, that's, can you just lower that a little bit? It's 613 commands that I've got to obey. At the very least, right? But that's not the righteousness that Jesus is talking about the righteousness that Jesus is talking about and I think this is so important for us to understand the righteousness that Jesus is talking about is not about being more obedient it's not about being more righteous it's about having a deeper obedience he's focused on an internal righteousness that comes from the heart and arises out of the heart to transform our behavior because it's only through our hearts being changed, that we truly experience a change in our behavior. You can only keep up the outside for so long before what's on the inside eventually comes out. In fact, the Bible talks about that too. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And if the mouth speaks it, the body's probably doing it as well. Because we live from the heart for better and for worse. And that's why you can't simply impose change from the outside. And so Jesus says to pay attention first to what's on the inside since that's ultimately where we live from and that's ultimately where the leverage for real transformation comes from. I like how Dallas Willard puts it, writer and theologian. He says this. He says, Jesus knew that we cannot keep the law by trying to keep the law. To succeed, one must aim at something other and something more. One must aim to become the kind of person from whom the deeds of the law naturally flow. An apple tree naturally and easily produces apples because of its inner nature. This is the most crucial thing to remember if we would understand Jesus' picture of the kingdom heart given in the Sermon on the Mount. The righteousness that Jesus is aiming for is from the inside out. It's more about becoming on the inside than it is about doing on the outside. 
And as you set your mind and your heart on the becoming, the doing will take care of itself. The, the, the actions will flow out of a heart that is submitted and fully aligned with God's kingdom and his righteousness. Because Jesus shows us that God is looking for righteousness that goes deep. But secondly, Jesus is also showing us that God's looking for righteousness that goes wide. One, one that, that has some wit to it. It's not just about going deep into our hearts. It's also about going wide when it comes to our relationships with others. In every single one of Jesus' examples that I talked about earlier, they all concern how we relate to one another. They all concern our interpersonal relationships with one another. You know, in Jesus' day, and even still sometimes in our day, I, I, we, we go to... We go to both extremes, I see, and we won't get into that, but we, we kind of go to extremes in a lot of different ways. But in Jesus' day, many had come to believe that the righteousness that God was looking for is just, it, it only has to do with me and God. Like, as long as I kind of stay within this, and, and I look the part, and I give my worship to God, and, you know, everything's cool and kosher between me and God, then we're good to go. And so what you did inside the temple inside the church building and worshiping God was more important than what you did outside of the temple. Now, tell me we don't sometimes have that mindset, right? We come into church and think, as long as I get here, that gives me liberties to kind of live the way I want to the rest of the week. And maybe we don't go off the deep end, but we just kind of make our own rules outside of, and, and we come in here and we're good to go. And as long as I got this vertical connection to God, then, then, then I'm good to go. My righteousness is good. But Jesus comes along and says, righteousness isn't just a vertical matter between you and God. It's not just this vertical aspect between you and God. It's also horizontal in how you treat others around you. Because God considers how we treat others as a reflection of, of how we treat Him. Just think about what Jesus says in the greatest command. Now, we oftentimes think of it as the greatest commands, Right? Because there's two of them, so any more than one, you learn this pretty early on in you know, English class, that's the plural form, so there must be two of them, so it's greatest commands, but really it's just one command, because they are inextricably linked together, they go together. When the expert in the law asked Jesus uh, what the greatest command is, 613 commands, what's the greatest of them? Jesus says the greatest command is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and Second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. They go together. Because God isn't just looking for a righteousness that goes deep, but he's also looking for a righteousness that goes wide. And then third and finally, most important point of all, God is looking for a righteousness that is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The more you read through the Sermon on the Mount, you, the more you begin to realize that the life he's calling us to live is impossible in and of ourselves. The, truly the life. We can do some of the right things, but truly living out this good life is beyond us. Our hearts are woefully short of the standard. We don't have what it takes in and of ourselves, inside or outside. And yet we can take heart because need I remind you of the very first words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Very first words out of his mouth in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's Jesus' very first words. 
That's what he builds everything else off of. I want you to understand this, Jesus says. There is a blessedness that comes that's going to flow throughout the rest of my teachings and flow throughout your life when you live out this life that comes from foundationally understanding that you are broken in and of yourself. You're broken. You're spiritually bankrupt. That's the very first words that Jesus speaks because he wants us to be reminded that as we go deeper into his teachings, we're going to realize more and more that we don't have what it takes in and of ourselves. We are spiritually broken. We don't have the resources in and of ourselves to love our enemies or to control our tongue or to control our lust or to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. We don't have the resources in and of ourselves to fill in the blank. And yet the Sermon on the Mount keeps driving us back to Jesus' first words, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the broken, blessed are the spiritually bankrupt when they truly realize it because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so we can take heart because he came to bring the saving and delivering and transforming God, power of God to the poor, to the broken, to the spiritually bankrupt, to all of us who realize that we don't have the resources in and of ourselves to live up to this standard. Let me tell you something very important that I think so many people misunderstand when it comes to Jesus. Especially so many people in our world when it comes to Jesus. Jesus came to set us free from sin. We all would believe, we, we all echo and, and amen that. But he did not come to set us free from living righteously. Jesus came to set us free from sin, but he did not come to set us free from living righteously. And yet there are a pretty good swath of Christians who sometimes believe this way and live this way. But Jesus did what he did, his life, his death, his resurrection, to set us free from sin, not to set us free from having to live righteously. In fact, he sets us free from sin so that we can live righteously. So that we can live the way that God, at the very root, calls us to live from the very beginning. So that we can live obediently to the life that God calls us to live. But here's the key. While living righteously and obediently isn't the source of our righteousness, it is the course of our righteousness. It's the path that we will inevitably walk down. It's not the source. It's a, it's, it's, it, our, our righteousness is not where all of this good behavior and, and, and obedience comes from. If it's the source of our righteousness, then we're all in deep trouble because none of us are going to measure up. Every single one of us are going to fall short of the standard at some point or another. We've all broken way too many commandments to count. Jesus Christ is the source of our righteousness. And he's come to bring the kingdom of heaven to the poor in spirit. And so obedience is not the source of our righteousness, but it is the course. When Jesus is the source obedience will inevitably be the course. Jesus came not to set us free again from living righteously. He came to set us free from sin, the bondage, the jail, the hell of sin so that we might live in the freedom of his righteousness. He came to pay the penalty for all the times when you and I don't live righteously or obediently and then to give us the insight and the power to begin to live that way because we're living out of his righteousness and the reality is that the only way to really pull off living out the sermon on the mount is to go the radical way of following jesus 
radical because he's come to take us back to the root of what God intended all along. And because of that, Jesus is the root to the good life that God desires for us to live. And to do that, Jesus takes us into the root of our lives, which is our hearts, because that's where we live from, for better and for worse. And he changes us at the root so that we can bear different fruit and truly live the good life he calls us to live. But that good life can only come when we follow Jesus and allow him to go deep into our hearts and into our lives.